There is an outline available of what I hope to cover today. So if you didn't receive one, you can put up your hand and God willing, one will be put into your hand by one of the ushers. <clears throat> Our subject is going to be Romans chapter 5. I had, <clears throat> I had um, mentioned during a couple of my lessons, I think, or maybe I think I only had two lessons on chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. That'll be what we'll be focusing on this morning. I just preached through that in two sermons and at a couple of different points, I mentioned I would probably do an adult Bible class later on, and that's today, what I'm doing. And this is what we have before us. So let's start out by reading that passage and refresh our minds a little bit about the things we've seen there. And then I'll give, I'll start out with a brief review, as you can see on that outline. And then we'll cover some things that I either just passed by or only touched on very briefly. Starting out in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And you'll recall the, the, that this passage here, these la this last half of Romans 5, is about Adam and Christ. So there's one man, the first one mentioned is Adam, the second one will be Christ. And then the parenthetical statement beginning in verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." In my review, I'm going to be selective to keep it short for one thing, but also just to try to bring out the main things that we have in this passage. And so that if you were here for those sermons, that will uh, hopefully resurrect some of those ideas in your mind. And if you weren't here, it might at least give you some idea 
of what this passage is about. I used in one of my introductions an illustration of the Puritan Thomas Goodwin, who said that we could look at Adam and Jesus Christ as two giants, and that these two giants have all of mankind hooked to their belts in some way. And that would be Adam having everyone who comes into this world, at least starting out, hooked to his belt because our spiritual condition, and then ultimately even what happens to us if we're not saved, is dependent in a great way on what Adam did in the Garden of Eden when he committed that sin of eating the forbidden fruit. And this is the part of the point of this passage, what happens to Adam happens to us, or even we could say it in a stronger way, like we see in um, verse 12 at the end, all sinned, when Adam sinned, all sinned. What happens to him happens to us. What he does, we do, because he's our representative. So everyone comes into the world on Adam's belt, hanging there, and some get unhooked and hung on Christ's belt, and that's that means that they're saved, and if they're saved, that means what Christ did to deliver us from our sins is credited to our account, as if we had done it ourselves. Or we could look at it, I use the scripture illustration of the two champions there in 1 Samuel 17. You had David on the side of the Israelites and Goliath on the side of the Philistines. They would go to battle just as individuals, but whatever happened to them would result in uh, either the victory or the loss of all their countrymen. So that's the way it is with Adam and Christ. They are these two champions, these two giants, if you will. And we saw that the main point in this chapter is, uh, we could say it's expressed in verse 12 and then uh, verse 18. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and then death spread to all men, because all sinned, and then picking up in verse 18, recapitulating that, summarizing it, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that's Adam's one sin, <clears throat> judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, and now it speaks about Christ, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, that is, all those who are Christ's, all the elect, resulting in justification of life. So the point is, of this last half of Romans 5, is that the lot, or the inheritance, we could say, of every man, every human being, is the fruit of the act of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. And I pointed out there are two significant principles that are taught in Scripture relating to God's dealings with men that are very important here in this last half of Romans 5. They are, first of all, federal headship, that by God's appointment, one man can represent a whole group of people, a whole nation, a whole race. So Adam is the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of the church, or as I said earlier, of all the elect. It's federal headship. The second principle that goes along with it is solidarity. This is why I put this in an adult Sunday school class, because 
Um, it's a little bit at a higher level. We have, and I'm so glad we have college students here today, so it makes me even more comfortable um, giving this kind of material in our class. But, and I'll try to make it simple enough. The other principle is solidarity. That is, we're, we mean by that the complete unity of a group. Uh, and that's true of all the members of the group. In the case of all mankind or the church, the elect. And that's true of the members and their head. So what Adam does, his people are treated as if they've done it. What Christ does, his people are treated as if they have done it. So these things, federal headship and solidarity, are ordained by God. We see them throughout the scriptures. Uh, we've seen, we see them throughout the world. God sees these groups then, all mankind and their head, Adam, or the elect and their head, Christ, God sees them as one, and he treats them as one, and it's right that he would do so. So again, the main point is, the lot or the inheritance of every human is the fruit of the act of one of two men, whether for ill or for good. And then we saw in my sermons First of all, how this is demonstrated in our text, now we're at point C, large letter C there, a comparison of Adam and Christ. In other words, there's an emphasis here about the similarity of Adam on the one hand and Christ on the other. And we could, we could summarize that by saying this, each one of them introduced something to the world, Adam to the whole human race, Christ to the world in the sense that he brought life and salvation into this world after the fall of Adam into sin. And we're all plunged into sin and misery. Christ brought life, and in particular, he brought life to his people. So each introduced something to the world. So first, Adam, and let me just summarize it um, briefly with three points. Uh, based, and it's not the sin, condemnation, and death. That's, that's what Adam brought into the world to all men. Uh, my three points are this. Adam, following our text here, is the one originally to blame for the death of every human being. It only took one transgression of Adam, our head, to condemn us all. That's what this passage teaches. And then the other thing here, the third thing under Adam is, because of Adam's sin, death has reigned over all human beings throughout the subsequent history of the world. Not those who were saved in every way, but it still even reigns over them and that even Christians die and even Christians suffer sin and misery throughout their life in this world. So let's just read to see the, how those points are stated over and over again. And that's another thing I pointed out about this passage. Paul keeps repeating himself, just changing words and phrases, and uh, some, puts a different uh, slant on the tr same truth over and over again. Notice the beginning of verse 17. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. In other words, it did. By one man's offense, death did reign through the one. That's Adam. 
Verse 18 at the beginning, Therefore, just as through one man's offense, just judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. And then verse 19 at the beginning, By one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, many were made sinners. So the first part of the comparison, Adam introduced something to the world, to all men, that's sin, uh, condemnation, and death. Now Christ, as we follow the comparison here, he's like Adam in, in a certain way, to a certain extent. He introduced something to the world, but he introduced righteousness, justification, and life. At the end of verse 14, it says that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. In other words, he's like Christ, and he points forward to Christ. He teaches us something about Christ. He's similar to him. Again, Adam introduced sin, condemnation, and death to all his posterity. That's everyone born into the world. Christ is like him, but Christ introduced something different, and that anticipates the next point. But Christ introduced righteousness, justification, and life to all his posterity. Christ's posterity are the elect. They're all those born into his kingdom. They are believers. All right? So there's the comparison. Each was a federal head. Each bestowed something upon his posterity, those who are federally identified with him. Now the contrast, and then we can get to these items that I want to focus on today. The contrast between Adam and Christ is this. And it's really Paul's main point in this passage. It is the greatest scriptural passage that teaches about the federal headship of Adam and Christ. But the main focus is on the contrast. That's Paul's main point. And the difference between Adam and Christ in their roles as federal heads is this. Adam's legacy, what he brings into the world, what he introduces to the world, and what he leaves with the world is death. Christ's legacy is, as I said, life, or as it's put in the last part of the chapter here, it's abounding grace. So let's just read in, in conclusion of this summary, verses 18 to 21 once again. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, and that's because of Adam's sin, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the passage is telling us by comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ it's telling us the great contrast between our two federal heads in terms of what they have done for us. And it's telling us how great our federal head, Jesus Christ, is. And it's telling us that, well, so in, on, staying on that point for just another second, it's telling us how free our salvation is. 
You might say, well, in other words, I'm condemned to death and I didn't even do anything. Yeah, before you came into this world, that's what Paul is teaching here. Just, I, I don't have to try to convince you. Just keep reading the last half of Romans 5 until it sinks in that that's what God is saying. But that also points to the reality, brethren, that salvation is entirely by grace. Many, many of the, the doctrines of the Bible ought to convince you that salvation is by grace. That is, you earn absolutely no part of it. Well, this, this text makes that point in the clearest of ways about Christ. And it also emphasizes how great is the grace that saves us. It's abounding grace, as it says at the end of verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. All right, so that's our review. Now for today, we're going to focus on three items there um, that I, like I said, I either just touched on or kind of just passed over and said I would come back to them. Uh, the first two have to do with the law. There's a sense in which really the third one has to do with the law as well. We'll see that when we get there. But notice, first of all, the first point, the law and the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity. And I want to start out, now that's in verses 13 and 14, but I want to start out by just giving a recap of verse 12 because he makes that statement there, then he kind of leaves it off and doesn't pick up on it again till verse 18 and finish it. But let's notice that what he says in verse 12, because that's the starting point for what we see in verses 13 and 14. Verse 12 says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and, the, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Let's just notice four specifics there. It says through one man sin entered the world. That's Adam, as we just saw. Second point it makes is death entered through sin. The wages of sin is death. So Adam's sin, we could say, was really the entry of death into the world as well as of sin into the world. And then the third point there, it says death spread to all men, all of Adam's posterity who are all of us. Death came to all men, all humans who ever lived. What's the one exception? Christ, exactly. Um, but then also the fourth point, it says, because all sinned. In other words, because Adam is your federal head, you are not only a recipient of the death that he earned, but you are credited, if I can put it that way, with the sin he committed. So you're not just treated as someone who has to suffer with him, but as someone who sinned in him. So there's verse 12. Now that leads to verse 13. So let's focus our attention on verse 13, because really verse 13 and 14 are things I kind of just passed over, relatively speaking, and they make some important um, statements here. Verse 13 says this, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. All right, so let's, let me make uh, some observations on this statement in verse 13. In verse 13 and 14, let's remember this as we look at each of these verses, but starting with verse 13. 
Paul is writing something that is going to support what he said in verse 12. And it's going to validate what I would call a striking statement that we have in verse 12. Just because of one man's sin, death came to all men. And when Adam sinned, because you're a human being and a descendant of Adam, you sinned in him. Now, if we're just going to use human logic and go by our native inclinations, probably the typical response to that of most people is, that's not Yes, oh, good, good, okay. But so Paul, sensing that there are people out there who think like that, is going to say, here's the deal. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. Where the, so, he's, so he's supporting what he says in verse 12. So look at verse 13 again now. It says, for until the law, sin was in the world. What he's saying there is, before God gave the tablets on Mount Sinai, sin was in the world. Just look at verse 14, at the beginning of verse 14. And this is how we know that that's what Paul's talking about. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. All right, so he's talking about something that was true between Adam and Moses. And this is what it was. It was the giving of the law on two tablets of stone in writing. That is what it's talking about until the law. Sin was in the world. All right? So let's think through this now. And remember what I said. We've got to remember Paul is writing something to validate what he said in verse 12. Law must have been in the world in some sense prior to Mount Sinai. Let's look back one chapter at Romans 4 and verse 15. Romans 4 and verse 15. There's some sense in which law was in the world and I want to use this text for that assertion. It says, for those, I'm sorry, because, well, let's start out with verse 14. We'll get the whole sentence. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay. So the point is, Wherever there is transgression, there must have been what? Right, a violation of a law. All right, so if there's sin, there has to be a violation of a law. In other words, God doesn't charge us with things that he didn't forbid or with not doing things he didn't command. It's not a mystery. If there's sin, there must be transgression of a law. So if there's transgression of a law, there must have been a law. Transgression occurs when law is broken. So if there's no law, there would be no law broken. There would be no transgression. There would be no sin. Whenever there is transgression, however, there is wrath. 
All right, so I just reasoned backwards using that statement. But the law does bring about wrath. If there's no law, there's no transgression. But there is transgression, there is wrath, and that's because there is law. All right, so in some sense, law did exist from Adam to Moses because there's a lot of sin described in the Bible. Let's think of a man who would maybe epitomize this idea of where they're, 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 um, uh, they're not being law in the world. Now, I should have looked this up, but I didn't. So it was Abimelech, I think it was his name. He was that one king where Abraham went with his wife and he didn't, so you just correct me if I'm wrong now or later. Um, and and he, he didn't know that that was Abraham's wife. He didn't commit adultery with her, but he was, he was, he was pleading with God that he would not judge him for adultery because he didn't know, even though he didn't commit it. He didn't know that that was Abraham's wife. He thought it was his sister. In other words, that man recognized it would have been a violation of God's law, even though this was long before the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. And even though he was not a man who had received special revelation from God like Abraham. Okay, so in an absolute sense, the law was in the world. And, and, and where, where was it in the world? We learned this in Romans. In our hearts, that's right. Written on our hearts, our conscience, there it is. So there's enough there to make us guilty of every violation of God's law. And, and here's a point. All sin is assigned to someone. All sin is assigned to someone. So from Adam to Moses, the reality is people did sin. They incurred guilt. They incurred wrath. Paul writes about people who never had the law in the sense of the scriptures in Romans chapter 1. And he doesn't say they're blameless. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. So in other words, there is enough law here to condemn them. But Paul's saying there was no explicit, clearly laid out, written law, published up till that time. That is Paul's point here. And then let's notice the strange statement of the last part of verse 13. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. Like I said, sin is always charged to someone. If people sin, the, the guilt of it just doesn't go into the cloud, as we say. It goes to the person who sins. So God is displeased with those people. He, they, are, they have guilt. And the wrath of God, as it says in John 3, abides on them. Sin is always charged to someone. Even though Paul makes this statement, sin is not imputed when there is no law. So in light of the statement on verse, of verse 14, here's how I would understand this, this statement in the last part of Romans 13. God wouldn't condemn the whole world of men without having given a clear warning. That's why I understand this. God does not do that. He did not do that. He never would do that. 
He wouldn't condemn the whole world of men without having made the consequences crystal clear. Now, we're told in Romans 1 that just on the basis of the creation around us, men are without excuse. All right, that's a given. Paul is not contradicting that here. Similarly, Romans 2, on the basis of the law in our hearts, we are without excuse. And that's true of all mankind. But here the point is, starting in verse 14, death reigned. And so Paul is focusing on that reality. So let's go on to verse 14 then and start by reading it and I'll make some comments about it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. In other words, the Ten Commandments weren't given on Sinai yet, but death reigned. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Okay, things I want to note here are, well, I have them laid out there, three observations, three things to note. First of all, we want to notice how and why death reigned. <clears throat> well, obviously there was sin, and obviously there was law. If there were no law, there could not be sin. Remember that God gave Adam a special commandment. In addition to the law written on his heart, he gave him a special commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was law. If there were, had not been law, Adam would not have been charged with sin. Um, but there was sin and there was law. There were not only Adam's sin from the time of Adam to Moses, there was a lot of other sins too. So there was sin and there was law. But we're talking, we're focusing in, Paul's talking about how it is that death came to reign. How is it that death came to reign over all people? How did that happen? Well, now we get to the next point here we want to look at, and that is this phrase, the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Okay, so, so this is true in some ways of you and me, but it would be especially true of people who lived between Adam and Moses. So let me ask you the question, how is it that none of those people sinned in the likeness of the transgression of Adam? I didn't hear it. Okay, they didn't eat the tree. They didn't commit that one specific sin. That's getting on the track here. Pastor Khan? They were not in a role as a federal head. All right. Je Jefferson? Okay, that's true, but that's not the point Paul is looking at. Dumo. All right, okay, those are the two things. So these are the two things we can say. And, 
And I'm following John Murray on this point, and I think he's right in what he says. So here are two things that we can say. The other two things that were mentioned are also true. But first of all, he says this. Um, when it says, the likeness of the transgression of Adam, that is to say, over those who did not voluntarily and overtly violate an expressly revealed ordinance of God. That's what Dumo just said. Of course, I like Murray's wording better, but <laughs> he had all day to think about it. All right, so here's an illustration. You have, um, I've used this, I think I used this illustration back in chapter four at some point. You've got, you've got the, um, the kid in the kitchen and he's doing his homework and his mother has baked cookies and now she says, we're having people over tonight. I got to run out and get a few more things. I'll be gone for about 15 minutes. Kid's sitting there. He starts smelling the cookies. Thinks it would be nice to eat a cookie. He eats a cookie. Doesn't think much of it. And he, the mother comes home and she sees a little chocolate on his chin. Did you take one of the cookies? Yeah. They're for tonight. They're for our guests. You can have some, but not now. Okay. So she, she's upset. She wishes he hadn't done it. We could argue because he lives in that home. He should know better, etc., etc. He shouldn't have done it. We can put it in the category of sin, but she's not going to get all out of shape because she forgot to mention it to him. But let's say she had mentioned it to him. Son, I know you just got home from school. I know you're hungry. I know when you finish your homework, you're going to want to eat. Go ahead. But do not touch these cookies. Now, if he does it still and has chocolate on his chin when she comes home, then she's going to let him have it in one way or another. You know, even if it's just you don't get any cookies tonight when the rest of us are enjoying them for dessert. The point is, she's given him an explicit command. There's absolutely no excuse and he should pay whatever penalty she wants to give him, especially if she said, if you do that, dot, 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 dot. All right, there's the difference. He, he would... In the likeness of the transgression of Adam means no one else voluntarily and overtly violates an expressly revealed ordinance of God. The law in our hearts, brethren, is not sufficient to save us. The law on the tablets is not sufficient to save us, but it's all the, it all the more aggravates our condemnation. And this is Paul's point. It's like a high-handed sin in... Um, Numbers chapter 15, compared to the sin committed in ignorance. Does the Old Testament say that the sin <clears throat> committed in ignorance is not a sin? No, it calls it a sin committed in ignorance. But it calls the other sin a high-handed sin. In other words, it goes right in the face of God's commandments. Someone clearly knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it anyway. That's Adam. That's Adam's sin compared to the rest of the world after he sinned. He was told explicitly it's an aggravated sin. And here's the point here. 
That is the kind of sin that Adam's was in contrast to the sins of the Gentiles, we could say, throughout the centuries leading up to the coming of Christ even. And then the second thing about the likeness of the transgression of Adam is what Pastor Kahn said, and that is that God laid this responsibility on Adam's shoulders, and he made the outcome to hinge entirely on this one commandment and this one sin. And here's the point. In that sense, only Adam committed that sin. And this should help us to see how the Scripture and why the Scripture places the responsibility on Adam's shoulders and not Eve's. Because in the Garden of Eden, who sinned first? Eve. Now, why is Eve not mentioned in Romans 5? She's not the federal head. In other words, there was a much huger burden placed on Adam's sin. So it was, the, the issue is not that there was a race to see who sinned first. It was there was one federal head. And that's why back, I'm more convinced of it now than I was back when I taught on the confession. But I don't like the statement of the confession about that our, the fall comes upon us because of the sin of our first parents. Both Adam and Eve are mentioned there. They're never mentioned in the Bible as the, the root and source of our sin. Just a side point. All right, so that's why um, it's pinned on Adam. He was the federal head, even though she sinned with him, and even before him, and even as the one who urged him to sin. All right. Then the third point there, Adam is a type, it says, of the one to who was to come. So following John Murray again, uh, notice the three points, three subheadings. <clears throat> one, Christ's one act or his obedience brought salvation to a whole world of men. So he is the uh, archetype, if you will, the antitype the one that the type points to, who was to come. The second point there, Adam's one act, his one sin, that's eating the forbidden fruit, led to the condemnation of a world of men. So in that sense, he was a type of the one to come. And the third point there, I was going to raise it as a question again, but there you have it right there, the answer. No one else's sin was ever in that category. It was only with Adam's sin. Not Eve's, not Eve's and Adam's, just Adam's. He was the federal head. All right, so just some things to note here before we go on to the next thing. <clears throat> Here's what I want you to notice. Paul has a very brief, well, let me look at my notes here, see how much more I have. Let me just try to finish this, and then I'll come back to this other things I wanted to point out if I have time. So I'd rather finish. <clears throat> so now point B, the law and the increase of sin in the world. And that's the first part of verse 20. It's really verses 20 and 21, but especially the first part of verse 20. So let me just read the two verses, and then we'll go back to the beginning. 
It says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the thing we want to focus on that I just really passed over in the first in the sermons I preached, it says, the law entered that the offense might abound. So in other words, the offense abounded. So Adam began the whole sin and misery complex, sin and condemnation and death. He brought it into the world. But that wasn't the end of sinning. That was the beginning of sinning in the world. And since Adam, sin has just proliferated. It has abounded. That's the point, that the offense might abound. But then it says in the end of verse 20, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I think I made this statement um, when I was preaching, that it's the grace of God that, is, that has abounded much more than sin. In other words, it has so far outstripped the multiplication of sin that it has overwhelmed sin and brought salvation, justification, life. But the point is, great, uh, sin did abound. And here, what it's saying is that God brought the law in so that sin might abound. We could say that, that Christ had grace to help him so that grace abounded even more. It had the power of God. But Adam was also, I said, very prolific as a leader. There was much fruit from his one sin. And part of the reason he was so prolific is because the law came in to, quote-unquote, help. The law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, why the t two tablets on Mount Sinai? And we could say, why all the other commands in addition to the moral law that are given in the Old Testament? Why? Well, in part, so that sin might abound. So there would be more sin. A parallel passage here is Galatians 3. So let's look at that. Galatians 3, 19 to 25. Paul is not making the exact same point here, but there's overlap and it's similar. Paul writes, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So we could say the law came, especially the moral law, we could say, but even the entire Mosaic covenant it came because of um, this whole matter of because of transgression or as it says in Romans 4 verse 20 
so that the offense might abound. In other words, to make sin abound even more. And how does it do that? Well, we could say it increases sin, it highlights the reality of sin, it firmly affixes sin to people. Uh, remember the statement Jesus made in John 15. And he's making this statement about the Jews, the Pharisees, the other leaders. He said, they would not have sin if I had not come. In other words, what he was saying there is this. There was a very bright flash of revelation that was enjoyed by the Jewish leaders in the first century. Jesus himself. His presence, his person, and his teaching. And in the midst, in the face of the clearest revelation ever, he was saying they still were blind as could be and their sin was worse than it otherwise would have been because they had such clear revelation. Now again, that was not an absolute statement. If I had not come, they would have no sin. Yes, they would have. They already didn't live up to the revelation they had. They already sinned against the law of God written. It was just worse when they did it in the face of the presence and the teaching of the Son of God incarnate. That's the point. But it's the same idea here. When the law comes, the transgression abounds. It's increased, it's highlighted, it's more firmly affixed to everyone. Kind of like the, the son who took the cookie without realizing he shouldn't because his mom didn't say anything. It's much worse with the son who took it when she said, don't do that. And then another way that the, the, the flesh, if, I'm sorry, the, um, the law increases transgression is what we're going to see in Romans 7 in several weeks. But in verses 7 to 9, Paul talks about himself. And he said that, um, well, I'll just read it. Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin. In other words, the law emphasizes what sin is, except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covenant. Okay, now I know. Then he says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. That's another way that the law abounds, or sin abounds because of the introduction of the law. Here's the boy uh, working on his homework in the kitchen. He's working so hard and faithfully at it, he might not ever have thought to go get a cookie. But if on the way out the door, the mother says, and by the way, don't eat any of those cookies, is he going to think for one second about math after that moment? No. The introduction of the law stirs up, as Paul said, all manner of covetousness within me. So that's what Paul is saying here about the um, introduction of the law so that the offense might abound. Now, how is that a good thing? Well, it's a good thing it's for at least one reason we could say. I think of one of the old commercials, and I may have used this illustration back in chapter 4 too. When I was a kid, it was for, I don't know what, if it was Tide or All or whatever, but one of those uh, washing, so clothes, detergent for clothes, all right? I do actually use it sometimes <laughs> when my wife is away. 
I make my clothes so dirty I have to wash them. She wrote directions out for me once, and I have since memorized them. <clears throat> All right? Anyway, I digress. So what they would do in some of these commercials is they would start out with a nice white shirt, and they would pour ketchup on it, or they'd take it and throw dirt on it and you know, grass, and then rub it in, and then throw it in the washing machine, and it comes out white. What's the effect of that? It's to manifest the greatness of the cleaning power of their detergent. And this is what God does. He's manifesting the greatness of the power of Christ to save. So, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Seems like a bad thing, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, and it does, and it did, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we'll have all eternity, brethren, to glory in that reality and to um, praise God for it. <clears throat> and then the last thing here, Christ's obedience, what is it? <clears throat> Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So here the question is, as I say, um, what is it? It's Christ's obedience. What is that? It's easy to figure out what Adam's disobedience was, verse 19. One man's disobedience, or verse 18, through one man's offense, one man's sin. It was the eating of the forbidden fruit. It was not that, plus all the rest of the sins he subsequently committed in his life of, what was it, 935 years. No, it was the one sin, all right? But our question is, what was Christ's obedience? Because it says that in verse 18, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all. And verse 19, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So some people say because of the fact that it's just focusing on one sin or one definite act in time of Adam, the same must be true of Christ. And they say it's just his death. It's just his dying. I think the scriptural way to understand it is this. Christ's dying is the culmination or the epitome of his obedience. But it's not the entirety of it. I think it's everything Christ did since he entered this world as a man, leading up to and including his death on the cross. The one righteous act of Christ, the, the Christ's obedience, definitely includes his death. We could say it especially includes his death, but as the culmination of all his obedience, and therefore it's not limited to that obedience. And here's the reason I say that, <clears throat> and that is that um, <clears throat> there, is, there is false teaching on the subject of Christ's obedience that just says, no, it's only talking about his obedience on the cross. 
And, and you could understand Romans 5 that way and not go off into other more serious error. But many of the people who look at it this way, it's just his obedience on the cross. What it ends up doing is saying the moral law of God in the entirety of it is not that big a deal. You see what I'm saying? In other words, Christ only really had to do one main thing when he came into this world. Just like Adam had one main commandment and it all or nothing hung on that one commandment and his obedience to it. Same with Christ, that he had to go to the cruel death of the cross. And if he just did that one thing, so he's really a lot like Adam in that way, it's just all focused on one thing. That's all it took for him to save us. And that's the righteousness that is imputed to us. The punishment was paid for our sin. We're good. Reformed theology is taught, and I believe the Bible teaches, and that's what I'm going to do, show you in the last... My clock here shows three minutes, so I'll try to... You know, I was going to look up every passage, but we won't have the time to do it. So let's just look at these passages and see if just focusing on the death of the cross is a fair representation of Christ's obedience to the Father that saved us and is credited to our account. First of all, Galatians 4, verse 4. That's talking about Christ coming into this world, being made under the law. And that means the whole Mosaic law. So in other words, the most full and complicated and burdensome law that ever existed is the Mosaic law. The apostles said in Acts 15, it was more than we or our fathers could bear. Christ came in under that law. So even though Adam had one primary special commandment to focus on, Christ didn't. He had one special thing, but not in exclusion from any others. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, is quoted in Hebrews 10, 6 through 8. It's where it says that Christ came into this world to do the will of his Father. I'm just paraphrasing it because I don't have it memorized. Um, he came in, I, I came in to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, he came to do every commandment of God. Uh, think of Luke 2, 51 and 52, where it talks about Jesus growing up. And it says that there that Jesus, as he grew in understanding um, it says he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men because he was maturing and he was having a greater understanding as a man of what? God's law, God's expectations for him, God's requirements for him as a man, but also as the savior of his people. Matthew 3.15 is the statement where John says, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I need to do this. Well, why? You don't have any sin. Right. But I'm the federal head of all my people. And so I have to do everything they have to do. Not just die on the cross. And then likewise, John 4, 34, 
5.30, 6.38, John 17.4. You can read those. Jesus was all about doing everything that his father wanted him to do. Not just die on the cross. Everything he did, he says in those statements, he does because it is the will of the Father. And then it leads us to that statement of Hebrew, of Philippians 2.8. Let's look at that and then we'll be just about done. Philippians 2 verse 8. I think this is the way to understand this. If someone ever raises this question to you, your mind should go to this text. Being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, it's, I think it, it's the same doctrine I just stated a little bit ago. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. In other words, not just in his death, in every single thing he ever did, coming to a crescendo culminating in what he did on the cross in willingly laying down his life for you and for me. And Hebrews 5, 8, 9 is simply saying, basically along with 1 Peter 1, 19, that Christ had to be without blemish. In other words, he had to perfectly keep the law. If he hadn't, he, he wouldn't have been without blemish and it would have been inconsequential what happened on the cross if the lamb there was not a spotless lamb. So anyway, that's a brief statement of it, but that's how I think we should understand it. May God help us from ever believing, let alone teaching anything that would diminish the important place of obedience to the law of God in the life of our Savior. And then following that, and this is what Romans 6 is all about, in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would take these things and write them on our hearts and help us to work diligently to understand what the scripture is saying, especially on this knotty or thorny topic of the law, especially with all the false teaching that has been in existence on that topic throughout the history of the church and in a peculiar way, even in our day, keep us, O God, from such errors. Help us to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And especially help us to bring forth fruit in our lives, following in the footsteps of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.